came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 12th of March, 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. In this episode, we are zooming over to Perth in Western Australia to speak with Chayan Chatterjee and find out about the amazing machine learning techniques he uses to pinpoint the origins of gravitational waves. Hello, Chayan. Hello, Brendan. Really excited to be here. Thank you very much. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Ausgrav researcher and PhD candidate Choyan Chatterjee, who develops machine learning algorithms to analyse gravitational wave data. Now, Choyan is based at the University of Western Australia. So thanks for speaking with us, Choyan. Thanks for inviting me, Brendan. I'm really excited to be in this show and to speak with you about my research. Excellent. Okay, so before we talk about your fabulous PhD research and your outreach work, AI and gravitational wave data analysis, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Joyon, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the state of West Bengal in India. It is there that I finished my high school, followed by my bachelor's and master's in physics from Presidency University. And then I came down here in Perth to do my PhD from UWA. So I was always very passionate about physics and particularly astronomy. And from a young age, I Developed, in, uh, developed an interest in topics like how the universe formed and what goes on inside a black hole. All those deep and profound questions uh, really sparked my curiosity and imagination. So I grew up with a sense of romanticism surrounding space and space exploration. And these ideas were, of course, influenced by uh, books which I read and the many documentaries and movies that I watched uh, on these topics. And one of the books that really inspired me early on as a teenager was Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time. 
And while reading it, I felt like each page and each chapter of the book was unraveling new mystery of the universe. And at the same time, it gave rise to so many questions, uh, which I was very, very curious about. I remember I just couldn't put the book down the first time I was reading it, although I didn't quite understand everything that I was reading back then. But definitely after reading that book, I knew for certain that this is what I wanted to do in my life. Also, I had excellent teachers in high school and university who really inspired me in many different ways and encouraged me to study physics. Fantastic. Now, tell us a little bit about those early school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change, Choyon? So I was interested in many subjects in school, but none of them really captured my imagination as much as physics did. I was fortunate enough to have teachers who supported me and inspired me all along the way. So back then, uh, most of the year 11 and year 12 students who actually studied science uh, either chose an engineering career or went on to do medicine. I think I was the only student from my batch who did basic sciences, and I certainly am the only person who is still doing it right now. I wouldn't say my ambition changed at any point in high school, but I think I would have also enjoyed studying computer science. In fact, my research right now requires me to do a lot of coding and numerical analysis, and I enjoy that work a lot. So I think I would have done fine had I chosen a computer science career as well. In fact, biology is one subject which I don't think I was particularly interested in in high school. But later on, after having heard some lectures in biophysics at university, And then uh, later on, after reading books by uh, Richard Dawkins on genes and evolution, I I feel that it is a very uh, exciting and very rich and diverse subject. And I I sometimes wonder uh, how things would have turned out if I actually had chosen biology, but but really no regrets at all uh, in my decision to study physics. I am thoroughly enjoying it. And while we're on the subject of my high school days, I would also like to mention that Uh, I got a lot of opportunities in high school to develop my public speaking skills through participation in debates and other competitions. Uh, And I was also frequently made the master of ceremony in several school programs, which really helped develop my confidence. And that has helped me a lot to do uh, a good research outreach today. Fantastic. Well, with the astrobiology, there's Lots of biology happening on Mars at the moment. Uh, That's a great combination, astronomy and biology. But we're going to focus on your gravitational wave work and your algorithm work in a moment. So after your successful school career, you went to the Presidency University in Kolkata and completed your BSc, majoring in physics. And then you did your master's degree in physics, specialising in self-interacting dark matter. Now, can you tell us about that next part of your study trajectory and how you came to move down to Australia and secure a position with Osgrav and then as a PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia, please, Shoyan. Yeah, sure. So after completing my master's, I, I was looking for PhD opportunities, both in India and abroad. 
And at around the same time, I became very interested in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And that was particularly because most of my uh, engineering friends uh, just couldn't stop talking about it. And uh, also, I kept seeing more and more papers in astrophysics uh, were being published with some application or the other of machine learning and deep learning models. Uh, so it was something that I really wanted to learn, and I thought that it would be a very a good skill to have. And therefore, I got in touch with Professor Amitabha Datta. Uh, he's a professor of computer science at UWA, and he was also a Facebook friend. So I met him for the first time when he actually came to presidency, when I was a master's student there, to give a seminar lecture on quantum computation. And uh, we have been in touch since then. And he, he's actually an alumnus of presidency as well, just like me. And uh, since he had a physics background and he was also working in computer science, uh, I thought that he would be the uh, right person to consult with for uh, opportunities uh, in this field and also to just learn about the uh, scope that is available uh, on, for, for machine learning applications in physics research. And he was very kindly, and he very kindly suggested me to uh, write to my current PhD supervisor, Professor Linching Wen, who at that time was looking for uh, intern students to work on machine learning in gravitational waves. And uh, so I wrote to her and got the position. And uh, I've I've worked as a visiting uh, research student uh, in her group for a while, and then I. I was really enjoying that work because uh, uh, it was the intersection of gravitational waves and machine learning, two topics which I was very interested in. And uh, later on, I got a PhD position in the same group, and I have been here ever since. Fantastic. Now, we know early career scientists often have great mentors and supervisors and inspiration, as you've just mentioned. So would you like to tell us about some of the other people who have supported your career and research directions? Certainly. First of all, my parents were very supportive of whatever career I chose for myself. And they've always motivated and supported me in every way they could. So I really wouldn't have been here without them. Also, uh, I've had uh, excellent teachers at school uh, who believed in me and who really encouraged me to study topics which were outside the immediate curriculum uh, because they knew that I had a knack for learning about interesting topics in modern physics research. And yeah, I have been definitely uh, very well groomed uh, at the school level. And then when I joined university, uh, I was fortunate enough to be taught by professors who were not only very good teachers and researchers, but also great mentors. In particular, I would like to mention uh, Professor Shuchetana Chatterjee from Presidency, uh, under whom I did my master's thesis. Um, yeah. So it was under her supervision and her tutelage that I learned how to do research and give presentations. And uh, especially uh, she taught us how to think about a physics problem and analyze results in a certain way. I particularly liked how she encouraged all her students to take charge of their own research and their own thesis and to actually become uh, independent researchers uh, right from a very uh, young age. And uh, this is something my current PhD supervisor, Professor uh, Lin Sheng, when also encourages very much. And 
I think ever since I came to UWA, I have grown a lot in confidence and uh, lynching was absolutely instrumental in helping uh, me build that sense of self-confidence. And I really, really love working with her. She's an uh, excellent supervisor and I look forward to working with her much more. Also, I would like to mention uh, that uh, Professor Amitabha Dutta, uh, uh, whom I've already mentioned about, he, he's an excellent mentor himself, and he was instrumental in helping me choose my research direction as well. Also, my other collaborators from ICRA, uh, Kevin Vincent and Fevers, uh, I'm always amazed by the breadth of their knowledge. Uh, also, my other group members from whom I learn so much every single day. I don't think I would have been the person I am today without the influence that each one of them has had over me professionally as well as personally. That sounds like an incredibly rich environment you're working in. Thanks, Chayanne. Now, our listeners will be aware of the University of Western Australia and their astrophysics work that happens over there. It's very famous. But can you tell us what OSGRAV is? And, oh, yeah, what's life like in Perth? Yeah, sure. So OSGRAV is the ARC Center of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. So it is like a large collaboration of scientists across Australia who are working in gravitational waves. So the research at OSGRAV is uh, divided into different uh, uh, research themes. Uh, First, we have a data analysis where we develop software and tools to detect gravitational waves and predict certain properties of the sources that produce gravitational waves. And then there's uh, instrumentation, which involves making the gravitational wave detectors more and more sensitive so that we can detect more gravitational wave signals. And then there's the astrophysics theme, which involves using the gravitational wave data to do astronomy. For example, we use the data to study things like how the different populations of stars are distributed in the universe and at what rate do they collide and merge to form gravitational waves. And we also try and predict things like the Hubble constant, for instance, which Uh, defines the rate at which the universe is expanding. So it's an uh, amazing and a very diverse collaboration to be a part of. And as far as life in Perth is concerned, uh, it's great. I've never been to a place which is as beautiful as Perth. I think Perth has the best sunsets, uh, especially the views from the beautiful beaches around are simply splendid. Uh, Also, the people here are extremely nice and warm and polite. And it has been great so far. Fantastic. Yeah, to the general public, gravitational wave astronomy sounds like a new thing, but it sounds like it's very well established. Um, Okay, that's great. So that's the background. Let's do some science now and look into your PhD work itself. Are you doing it with a research thesis or by publication? And What broad questions are you aiming to answer in your PhD research? Yeah, so I'm working on a PhD thesis and plan is to write the thesis in the form of a series of papers. And uh, so my PhD research is focused on localization of gravitational waves. Or in other words, I'm trying to develop algorithms 
which can predict which direction in the sky a gravitational wave signal is coming from. So we know that the gravitational waves, they are produced when two heavy compact objects like black holes or neutron stars collide and merge together. And this collision creates ripples which travel at the speed of light and stretches and squeezes the fabric of space-time all uh, in its journey. And the idea behind my research is to use a technique called machine learning to predict the sky direction of gravitational wave signals at several times faster than what uh, currently used methods can achieve. Now, why do we care about the speed? The reason mainly has to do with neutron stars. So when two neutron stars collide and merge, it is accompanied not only by a strong emission of gravitational waves, but also a variety of electromagnetic signals which cover the entire spectrum from gamma rays to radio. Now, some of these electromagnetic transients can be observed in the optical and radio band for days and weeks after the merger happens. And we don't really need rapid localization to observe those events. However, there is a particular emission which happens about one or two seconds after the merger of neutron stars and which lasts only for about a second. And that emission is called short gamma ray burst. And, and, this, uh, and therefore, it is extremely important to detect these short gamma ray bursts in less than a second because otherwise uh, we are going to uh, miss, uh, miss these, uh, these events. And therefore, uh, my work uh, is concerned with localizing gravitational waves in less than a second so that we are able to detect gravitational waves and short uh, gamma ray bursts uh, together at the same time. And the problem uh, is that the currently used methods can only localize a gravitational wave event uh, at around eight seconds after a signal is detected. So in, in that case, we are going to miss most of the short gamma ray bursts. So I am working on uh, developing models which can actually help detect gravitational waves much faster. I'm also going to investigate ways to potentially localize gravitational waves before the merger has actually happened. And if we are able to achieve this, then we can expect to have uh, many coincident detections of gravitational waves and uh, short gamma ray bursts in the future. And this in turn will help reveal a lot of secrets about uh, what neutron stars are composed of, uh, which uh, till today is still a very big mystery. That is astonishing. Um, I've heard of astronomers looking back in time, but you're looking forward in time. Now, you recently won a prize for your presentation at the ANITA conference, and you also won a prize back a bit earlier in the UWA three-minute thesis competition for explaining your PhD in three minutes flat. It's called Locating the Great Gig in the Sky. And our listeners can see it at tinyearl.com forward slash Choyan3, that's C-H-A-Y-A-N-3. Now, you originally did this with some very nice slides I had a look at it uh, shown up on the big screen for a live audience. But for listeners here now, would you like to give us an audio-only replay of your three-minute thesis presentation? Certainly. 
So imagine you're watching your favorite movie, but with no sound and no subtitles either. Would you still enjoy the film? I mean, you would sort of understand what's going on in the movie. You might even like what you're watching, but your experience will remain incomplete. Now, what if I told you that's exactly how we've been doing astronomy for a really, really long time? Because until recently, all we have used to study how the universe works is light and different forms or wavelengths of light. But that is not the complete picture. The story of our universe is not a silent movie. It is full of characters that chirp. And no, I'm not talking about cosmic birds, but yeah. rather black holes. I'm sure you've all heard about black holes. Yeah. Those mysterious objects which are as heavy as stars, as small as cities, and from which even light cannot escape. Now imagine two black holes spiraling towards each other at incredible speeds. Einstein predicted that when this happens, it stretches and squeezes the entire fabric of space-time, sending out powerful ripples through space. It's like throwing a stone in a pond, only this time, the pond is the fabric of space-time itself, and the ripples in the pond are called gravitational waves. Now, gravitational waves are not like normal light waves. They cannot be detected by ordinary telescopes, but like sound waves, they vibrate the medium through which they travel. In my research, I'm going to try and find out the direction in the sky these gravitational waves are coming from. But like I've mentioned, normal telescopes cannot detect gravitational waves. What we basically need is an instrument which can measure an extremely tiny distortion in space, which is created when a gravitational wave signal sweeps past the Earth. And this signal, by the way, is also called a chirp. So to do this, Scientists used lasers to build the world's most sensitive ruler. And the name of this instrument is LIGO, or Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. It consists of two four-kilometer-long arms, which are basically laser tunnels that wobble in response to a gravitational wave signal. Now, my job is to use these LIGO detectors like a GPS device. I'm going to use the data from these detectors and apply machine learning algorithms, which can teach computers to predict the sky directions of gravitational waves from this data. We believe that using my method, we can localize gravitational waves orders of magnitude faster than current methods. The universe is talking to us. And finally, we have the technology to listen to its story. Thank you. Oh, that's astonishing. And there's also the Virgo instrument, and soon we're going to have some instruments up in space. It's fantastic. Now, do we need to know anything more about the LIGO instrument that captures your data? And you've explained beautifully what chirps are, and they're caused by the collisions of black holes and double neutron stars. Um, anything else cause chirps? Yeah, I can definitely elaborate on that. So first of all, uh, I'd like to mention that the LIGO instruments, like I mentioned, they are the world's most sensitive ruler. And the reason I use that analogy is because just like a ruler, uh, what LIGO is basically trying to do is it is trying to measure a certain length. 
or in this case, it is trying to measure a change in length of the four kilometer long arms of the, of the LIGO instruments. And this change in length is produced by the stretching and squeezing effect that uh, gravitational waves have on space-time. And how small is this change? It's about 1,000 times smaller than the diameter of a proton. Whoa. So LIGO, uh, and as well as the Virgo instruments like you mentioned, uh, they use uh, lasers, mirrors, and extremely uh, sensitive instruments which uh, measure this extremely tiny change in length. And that measurement is used to confirm a GW detection. Now, this gravitational wave detection, if we convert this in the uh, audible range, it sounds something like this. So the signal first starts at a very low frequency. And then uh, rapidly, the frequency and the pitch and the loudness of the signal increases. Uh, until at about the uh, merger of the two black holes and neutron stars. And after the merger has happened, the signal uh, suddenly drops. So this short, sharp signal is called a chirp. And the reason the signal shows such behavior is because the black holes, uh, they orbit each other at very high speeds. And while uh, they orbit each other, they come closer and closer to each other. And as they come closer and closer, they orbit faster and faster. And this causes the oscillation of the waves to increase very rapidly. And this reaches maximum at the merger region uh, when uh, extremely uh, strong gravitational wave signals are released and we are able to detect it uh, from Earth using the LIGO and Virgo instruments. And after the merger has happened, the new resultant black hole that is created, uh, it wobbles a bit and finally settles down to rest and the signal fades away. So because of the short and sharp nature of the signal, we call, we call them a chirp. That's fantastic. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we had Dr. Fiona Panther, your colleague, explaining how the team interrogates LIGO data to look for key components of a gravitational wave chirp. How does your work and Fiona's work overlap and are you both trying to solve similar problems? Yeah, so uh, Fiona and I uh, work on the same group. And in her interview, she spoke about uh, how we detect gravitational waves using the SPEAR pipeline, which was developed by uh, current and former members of our group. So I guess you can say that the uh, ultimate objective of both of our research projects uh, is to improve the performance of the SPEAR software so that we can detect more gravitational waves. But currently, we are looking at different aspects of that problem. I am trying to investigate ways to uh, integrate machine learning models in the pipeline for fast localization, whereas Fiona is currently trying to improve the performance of the SPEAR pipeline on gravitational wave events, which are detected by only one detector. Right now, the SPEAR pipeline is optimized for detecting uh, two and three detector events. So these are events which are detected by only two or three detectors. And uh, however, if the first and second observing runs of LIGO and Virgo are anything to go by, then we know that we get a lot of events which are detected by only one detector. And so she's trying to improve the performance of our pipeline 
so that we are able to detect more one detector uh, events as well. Uh, also, she is uh, supervising uh, some students who are uh, working on search for uh, coincident gravitational waves and fast radio bursts from data. And this is an area where localization is particularly important for the reasons that I have mentioned. So yes, you can say that there is some overlap, but we are currently looking at uh, different aspects of a shared common goal, if I may put it that way. Thank you, Chohan. Now, we always ask one technical question for listeners that like to put their propeller hats on when they listen to an episode. Now, you're what I'd describe as an AI detective. Now, is AI the same as machine learning? And can you tell us about the code language that you use and how it's used on the raw data to identify chirps? And this could be a stupid question. Is that what a pipeline is? So first of all, uh, to answer the question about AI. So AI or artificial intelligence is a bigger concept. Uh, which involves uh, machines being able to simulate human thinking and human behavior and carrying out tasks which uh, normally humans would carry out. Whereas machine learning is like a subset of AI that allows a machine to learn from data without being explicitly programmed. For example, uh, in normal programming, uh, we provide the computer with data and we provide it a code. And the model basically executes the code uh, one after the other, and uh, we get the result. However, in machine learning, we provide the computer with the data, and also we provide the result. And we tell the computer to go and find out the best way to arrive at this result from the data. So if I may use an analogy, it is almost like teaching a baby to let's say identify an elephant, for example. And we do this by showing uh, them many pictures of elephants. And so by, and by looking at these pictures, the BB will be able to learn, uh, this is what the, an elephant looks like. So here, here is the tusk and here is the trunk and uh, this is the size of an elephant. And in a similar way, the machine learning models, uh, they extract features and they try to establish patterns in the data that we provide to it. And it draws a, a relationship between those extracted features and the results that we are providing to the model. And once the model has learned the relationship between the data and the result, it can make a prediction. And it can do it and make the prediction much quicker than other normal methods that we conventionally use. So this is a very uh, rough idea uh, to, to just demonstrate how uh, machine learning is different from AI. Well, the field of machine learning and AI has uh, really developed very rapidly over the <clears throat> last few years. And right now there are like many open source software which are available for download and which uh, anyone can use to design their own uh, machine learning models and develop their own AI. The programming language that I use for my work is Python. And the good thing about Python is that it comes with uh, many libraries and functionalities that support very easy execution of uh, advanced machine learning models. 
and I use a number of different machine learning models, which are uh, each, uh, each tailored for its own specific task. To elaborate a bit further, first I use a certain uh, machine learning model to clean or remove the terrestrial and other noise features that contaminate gravitational wave signals. And then after uh, I have cleaned the signals and uh, removed all the noise from the signals, I use a code to extract features from signals which I need to localize gravitational waves. And then I feed those extracted features into another machine learning model, which is trained to predict the sky direction from those features. So you're right. So th that's what uh, we call a pipeline in software terms. It is like a, a sequential process, uh, which consists of a chain of units where the output of one element is basically the input of the next element. And the reason we call it a pipeline is, of course, because of its uh, resemblance to an actual uh, physical pipeline. Fantastic. So your aim is to localize the source of a gravitational wave event so that you can alert the world's telescopes to look in the right direction to see the evidence of the gravitational wave at a whole lot of different wavelengths, optical, X-ray, gamma rays, et cetera. How will you know exactly which direction to look at? So that's an excellent question. First of all, the gravitational waves are localized using a method called triangulation, which is exactly how the GPS in our phones work. So our phones have a, a GPS receiver which is constantly uh, listening to signals which are being sent out by uh, GPS satellites. And the GPS receiver it tries to calculate how far we are from, so from some of those satellites. And uh, the way the receiver is calculating the distance is by finding out the difference in the arrival time of the signals from different satellites. And if it is able to calculate that distance from the arrival time delays, from four or more satellites, then it can exactly pinpoint our location. So in the same way for gravitational wave localization, we use the difference in the arrival time of the signals in uh, different detectors to uh, triangulate the location of the signal in the sky. But that's not the only information that we use. We know that the gravitational wave detectors, uh, they are more sensitive for some areas of the sky and they are less sensitive in other areas. Therefore, if we detect a very strong gravitational wave signal in one detector and a less prominent signal in another detector, then we can make a better guess about the uh, source location because uh, we know how the relative amplitudes of the signals uh, in different detectors change with uh, different sky directions. So it is a combination of uh, different factors. The uh, First of all, the arrival time delays and then the amplitudes and the phases, which actually tell us about, uh, which, uh, which actually gives us information uh, that helps us pinpoint the source direction of a gravitational wave event. Oh, that is astonishing. That's fantastic. The discussions you must have with your colleagues uh, Mind-bending. Thanks, Choyan. Um, <laughs> good luck with the rest of your work. It sounds like you've got a great group there at UWA. 
It might be good to mention here how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and on your research. Well, uh, the COVID-19 hasn't really uh, impacted me uh, very fortunately. Part of the reason for that is, of course, having the incredible fortune to be at Perth, uh, where uh, the outbreak was never very severe. But the main reason why work wasn't affected is because I just need a computer in front of me to do everything that I do. And uh, I don't really need to be physically present at university all the time. Of course, uh, I would have loved to travel and attend conferences, but that did not happen this year. And, and of course, I've been missing home a lot. So really looking forward to go home, uh, hopefully sometime at the end of this year after the vaccines are out. But yeah, as far as work and studies are concerned, it hasn't really affected me. But my sympathies to uh, everyone who has suffered and are still suffering from the uh, effects of the pandemic and the lockdown. Uh, I know PhD students who have their own families and who are stranded elsewhere, uh, unable to meet for more than a year. And I just wish things get much better for them very soon. Yeah, very good. Um, I'm absolutely certain you'll be looking forward to giving your family a big hug when you see them next. Now. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Chayam. So earlier on, you explained how you work with AI algorithms, but could you also tell us why people should be excited about machine learning and AI and how it's impacting on this new field on astronomy in general? Yeah, sure. So AI is a term that uh, I think has already entered every household and uh, experts claim that artificial intelligence is actually uh, the new electricity. And we can see evidence of that already. I mean, uh, so many jobs are now getting automated and uh, we are talking about uh, self-driving cars in the near future. So slowly but surely it is taking over our lives. And I think the best way to keep up with the changing times is to understand how to use it and how to benefit from it. Machine learning in particular has had a great impact in astronomy. There are many groups all over the world who are uh, working on different applications of machine learning, uh, not only in gravitational waves, but also in optical astronomy, for example, where uh, different uh, machine learning classification models are uh, used to categorize galaxies uh, according to their morphology. Uh, and also it is being used for predicting properties of galaxies like the mass and uh, other things from uh, image data. And it's also being used to analyze very large data sets in high energy physics experiments like search for dark matter, uh, where uh, a lot of data is generated uh, every day. So it's getting really popular as a statistical and a data analysis tool, and we can only expect to see more applications of these techniques in the near future. Fantastic. Yes, it's all around us all the time now. Thank you. Now, I know that you do great outreach work. Your explanations of astronomy and your research is astonishing and 
so explicitly clear. Can you tell us about your passion for outreach and some of your most recent presentations and just why is outreach so important for you? Yeah, so I did quite a few presentations in the last few months. So a few weeks ago, I presented at the uh, Australian National Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics or the ANITA conference. And uh, then in early February, uh, I was one of the guests on the opening night of a science talk show at the Perth Fringe Festival. The name of the show is The Uncertainty Principle, and it is hosted by one of the co-hosts of the show is Ben McAllister, who is a postdoc uh, in physics at UWA. Uh, so that was an entirely new experience for me. It was, uh, it was a science comedy show where uh, besides talking about my research, I also uh, had to try and entertain the guests and make them laugh. So it wasn't something I'd done before and it was, it was great fun. Also in December, I gave a talk at my alma mater, uh, Presidency University, in its uh, alumni lecture series. So that is something I'm really very proud of. Uh, and also, I, I really enjoyed presenting at the three-minute thesis competition. Uh, I had never done anything like that before. I, I actually only started to do outreach after uh, the three-minute thesis thing. Participating in this competition uh, made me realize uh, how wonderful it feels to actually explain uh, research to someone who is outside the field and, and then seeing their excitement when they uh, are able to understand the particularly complex concept. So that feeling when you are able to make someone realize how exciting your work is, is truly unmatched. And, and particularly when, we are, uh, when, when you're working in a very specialized area, that most people outside the field will probably not care about. To get people excited about those topics, uh, I mean, that feels amazing. Also, like Richard Feynman once said, if you can't explain something in simple terms, uh, you haven't understood it. And I find that every single time I prepare for a talk or for an outreach, it has helped me realize gaps in my own knowledge. And that has helped me understand the topics uh, much better and prepare myself much better. So also I feel very inspired to do outreach because uh, I guess without proper outreach, without a brief history of time, without Carl Sagan and without teachers uh, who could make physics an interesting subject for me, uh, I probably wouldn't have fallen in love with physics in the first place. So yeah, uh, outreach is uh, very important for me and I would definitely uh, love to do much more in the future. Thank you. And this podcast is another example of your work. Now, <laughs> the microphone is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of diversity or science denialism or career paths or your particular passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours, Shion. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I guess I haven't been doing research for a really long time, uh, so I don't have a lot of experience, but I'd, like ju I'd just like to mention that I'm very proud of the fact that whatever little research I have done until now, 
It has come under the direct supervision of two very competent and very brilliant women physicists, Professor Lin Ching Wen, my current PhD supervisor, and Professor Shuchetana Chatterjee from Presidency, who was my uh, master's thesis advisor. I'm also uh, really proud to be uh, part of a very diverse organization like OSGRAV, where students and professors from so many different uh, backgrounds uh, work together. In fact, the other day, Fiona was telling me that OSGRAV might actually have more female PhD students than male students, uh, which I guess in a a male-dominated environment like uh, physics uh, is really incredible. And uh, here in Australia, I've been blessed to meet and interact and learn from people from so many uh, different places and cultures. And uh, being an international student myself, I can only hope that institutions uh, will be more inclusive and there will be more, uh, there will be more diverse representation which is extremely important, not only in science, but in uh, every sphere of life, I guess. Fantastic. We are also big fans of diversity here, Choyong. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Yeah, uh, well, right now, uh, our group has its eyes set on O4, which is the fourth observing run of LIGO that begins uh, at around mid-2022. The first three runs have significantly changed our understanding of the universe through its many gravitational wave detections. And uh, we are actually expecting one new gravitational wave event to be detected uh, every single day in the fourth run. Uh, So that's incredible. And uh, we are getting our pipeline ready to meet those challenges. It's an immense challenge to analyze uh, so much data uh, coming in throughout throughout an observing run. And I am particularly excited about O4 because we hope to deploy some of our machine learning models in our search pipeline sphere. And if that happens, we would uh, be the very first group that is running an online uh, gravitational wave search pipeline uh, with machine learning. So, yeah, extremely uh, exciting times ahead. Exactly. So I hope all our listeners keep our ears open for Observing Run 04. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Choyo. Final question. What do you think will be next for you in your career path after you nail your PhD, which I'm sure you will? <laughs> well, hopefully more research. Uh, I plan to look for postdoctoral positions after my PhD. I'm still as excited about my research as I was when I first started doing this work. Uh, it's what keeps me awake at night, and I uh, sure wish to do this for as long as I can. The other thing that I would like to do is more outreach. Uh, I'm really enjoying myself delivering talks and speaking in podcasts, uh, but uh, I'm also actually very passionate about writing. Uh, I have written uh, popular science articles in magazines before, and I certainly wish to do more of that in the future. Fantastic, Choi, and I'm sitting here with a huge smile on my face just learning so much in this interview. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, 
Choyon Chatterjee. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule and congratulations. Good luck in observing run 04. And well, thanks, Choyon. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was wonderful to talk to you. And thanks a lot for all your good wishes. Excellent. See you, mate. All right. See you. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgraves' Astroblogger website. Radio Wave.